This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Illinois 50th District Representative John Shemkus. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Illinois Republican John Shemkus next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. The National Crop Insurance Services provide individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. After years of ambitious goals of repealing and replacing Democratic laws and regulations, Illinois 50th District Representative John Shimka says the burden is on he and other GOP leaders to deliver what they see as needed change in Washington. Over the years, we've we've been asked to repeal and replace or ease the regulatory burden, and we'd say, well, we're just uh, we just have the House, we need the Senate, we need the presidency. Well, then we the conservatives took over the the Senate and then got asked the same questions we couldn't deliver because we didn't have the presidency. Well, now we have no excuses. You know, we've got the House representatives, we've got the Senate, and we've got the presidency. And I think you've already, you're already seeing results of that through the uh, presidential executive orders on easing the regulatory burden, through us moving a repeal and a replace bill. So there's a lot of emotions. One is we know this is our opportunity to do the things we promised over the past, in essence, uh, seven years. But just because we're all Republicans doesn't mean we're all the same brand of Republicans. So... Uh, we have to try to move forward, bringing the vast majority of our friends along with us, and we have to understand that some people can't get there, and hopefully it's it's enough for us to go move forward. And, and then I love Washington because your enemies today are your allies tomorrow. So fight the fights, make a, a short-term enemy, but then that's probably could be your very strong ally tomorrow. But 60 votes in the Senate will mandate that there'll be some level of compromise. On some issues, the first part of repeal and replace is a 51-vote threshold. It's reconciliation. So, uh, But for the most part, uh, you're seeing it now with the confirmations of, of the presidential appointees. I think Democrats in the House are, are stung by their election loss. And, and we saw it on moving the health care bill that if there's something they really believe in, they're going to fight tooth and nail. It's our hope that we can agree to disagree and fight tooth and nail on the things that are that important. And there's other things that we can work together to, to move an agenda that's good forever. Telecommunications is one. Safe Drinking Water Act is one. Brownfield, stuff that I deal with, shouldn't really be partisan. Mm-hmm. It just, you just got to move it through the process. This president wants to spend money on infrastructure. We're $19 trillion plus in debt. How do you spend another trillion and make it an investment that's worth digging deeper into debt? Yeah, I think I, I think there are trust funds already set up for some of this. I, mean, I use the area that I deal with, uh, 
nuclear waste. There's a nuclear waste trust fund set up based upon ratepayers and states that have nuclear power. And and so if over 100 years you have $100 billion in infrastructure that gets paid for out of the nuclear waste fund, that's not in addition to the debt. That's directed money. Uh, Universal Service Fund is what people pay on their phone bill to help connect rural America. So there are some of those, but roads and bridges, I, I think you have to find a way uh, to, to have people who use roads and bridges to pay. Mm-hmm. Now, some states have already done that with tolling and stuff. I've never been opposed to a user fee and, and raising gas taxes, especially when you're at two bucks a gallon or two twenty-five a gallon. I mean, if you can't do it now, when are you going to do it? And if you want better roads and bridges, you've got to pay for it. Easier for those populated areas to come up that, with that money than rural areas like South Dakota, Montana. But it's a national fund, and most interstate repairs are mostly funded through federal highway dollars. And states are already trying to raise their taxes to meet their needs. But again, they're all, they've always been, even though they plan, they execute, it's their highway departments that do it, most of that stuff is federal highway dollars. I'm thinking of agriculture here and the productivity that we have in the breadbasket and our customers that are around the globe. And more than one agriculture group is talking about the need for infrastructure to be strong. Some would say we've lost a lot of our advantage to our competitors in the southern hemisphere that if we don't begin to make investment in infrastructure, we'll put ourselves secondary to our competitors. Yeah, I just met with the corn growers, and we did talk infrastructures and locked and dams, especially important in Illinois because of the the Ohio, we have the Illinois, we have the Mississippi, all uh, great inland waterway systems that help us move our commodities uh, cheaper, quicker, but they need major repair. That's also part of an infrastructure project, but you also have a user fee on the inland waterway systems that's supposed to go. Now, you know, I think that the benefit of, of Trump uh, is that, you know, he's like, if you, if you read his background and his development, he's really a builder, and he was on time under budget. So if you get him kicked into federal infrastructure projects on time under budget, that'll help us repair locks and dams. But if you allow the Corps of Engineers and the litigious system to, to bemoan and cry and delay and fight, uh, that's, our, that's our problem. So when we think of this infrastructure, it would be easy to spend a lot of money on airports and those in urban areas. But if we're talking about locks and dams, that's a rural part of the country. And a trillion dollars is a lot of money, but it's not an unlimited amount of money. So will the administration lead on where those projects will be, or will Congress have the right to vote and to determine where those funds are spent? Well, I think all appropriations begin in the House, so it'll that's the spending of money. Uh, is directed by Congress. Now, we don't earmark anymore. Uh, we may reevaluate that. The earmarks made it a lot easier for us to personally get involved and say, we need to fix this lock and dam, or I need this levy repaired, or I have this clapper gate that's not functioning. And so, boom, boom, put it in the law. So thinking about regulatory reform, the administration wants to change, and we've already seen Administrator Pruitt of the EPA follow executive order from President Trump and to see some relief on WOTUS. It's not completely over yet, but many in agriculture and other areas are breathing a sigh of relief. You're right. 
I couldn't say any better. You said exactly what where where we're at, and I think it's not exactly over, but I think people feel that it's over. So if the administrator feels the need to respond, because agriculture said, industry said, we need a definition. We need a clear definition of what's a navigable waterway. Can this administration just repeal what the previous did on waters of the U.S., or do you feel like they must come in and write to replace? Good question. Um, I've always talked of using the present language and defining navigable as navigable based upon the time that it was really implemented, and that means you're able to navigate in it, right? And that doesn't mean walk through it or uh, wade through it and stuff. So, again, not totally my expertise in following the language of law and the, and the, and the rulings and, and the president executive order, but I think we'll get to a place where the agricultural community will be pleased. Uh, Administrator Pruitt making it very clear that states are not the enemy in the regulatory fight that they might actually be a partner. Well, I've dealt with EPAs um, and a lot of the uh, regional organizations, uh, state EPAs, uh, other organizations that bring in the uh, EPA administrators from the states or the tribes groups and stuff. They've been very, very helpful. They actually do the work in the state. So we're using the term here cooperative federalism, and we want to push things down to the state. Uh, and that's where people live closest to the to the citizens there, um, and we think we get a better return. When we changed the coal ash rules, it was to st- federal standards, state enforcement. That's kind of the cooperative federalism we're looking at across the board. When I recently talked to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he said the war on coal is over, but the damage is clearly done through the Obama administration and their war on coal. So with this new administration and with this new EPA, what does a state like Illinois, who has coal, what do you hope for? Well, I think the the Leader McConnell is exactly right. That's kind of the way I put it. Uh, We've stopped the bleeding. And and now, uh, because capital moved to to address the regulatory regime, and to think that capital is going to immediately move back into uh, coal mining and trying to restart some uh, power plants. It's, I don't think that's realistic. But I do think is is we have sent a signal to those power plants that still use coal and those coal mines that there is no longer any assault on them by the federal bureaucracy. Through your Energy and Commerce Committee, we find the nation's energy law and we find the renewable fuel standard. It would be easy to say nothing has to be done on this until 2022, but RFS is proving to be a very polar issue. Do you see a rewrite of RFS? Well, we're trying. 2022 is the time when the control goes to the administrators. So the question posed, is the uncertainty of 2022 and who's the president, who's the administrator, is that enough leverage to get you to the table to try to certainty by writing, rewriting the law? And we're going to find that out. Um, we think there are bits and pieces of things that folks are looking for, uh, certainty in CAFE or zero carbon fuel standards. We think there's uh, uh, the RVP issue. Uh, we, we think that there's um, uh, enough there on trying to, to make sure that there is an in- increased market, but also a time when mandates go away. You know, um, 
so that uh, my friends in the ethanol community are prepared to compete. You know, they told me they're prepared for for years. So we're we're going to try now. Um, I'm not sure how successful we'll be. The question is, are you afraid of uncertainty in 2022? And if so, come talk to us because we want to try to craft a compromise where everybody knows what the rules will be post-2022. Uh, we may find out that people would rather just throw the dice and think the world would be better not touching it. But if that happens, then my friends on the other side will, will try to ramp up legislation that's very harmful for ethanol. And we'll have to see if they get traction and they roll roll over me is kind of the the debate. Is the price of crude at $50, does it take away an urgency to work on renewable fuels? Well, I think what's, you know, if you follow the history of the RFS, which we don't have time to do, but we've made the argument based upon different aspects, clean air, energy security, uh, energy security again. Now, the, with really the availability of the crude oil in the continental United States, the energy security debate is lessened. And and so I think that's what's impacted things more than anything else, is that, well, when we thought we didn't have any crude oil in our country, we, we kind of bought this renewable fuel and make sure that we had something, but now we've got oil all over the place. And uh, it's not that big a deal. We have lots of flex fuel vehicles and perhaps not the infrastructure for those who would like to run higher blends. So from the corn grower ethanol industry side, you'd like to see a little better infrastructure. But if I'm a corn grower and I'm looking at 15 billion bushels produced in the country and 5 billion or a third of that goes to grind ethanol, you'd like to see that maintained and afraid that it might not be. Right. Well, and We've tried the E85 route, and some people in Illinois, we've got them. I drive around, I use them, but they're not fully deployed. Uh, that's why I think the RVP issue's got some more legs. Can you open up another period of time for, you know, the summer-winter debate so that you have a more a longer time to be able to sell a higher a mix? And that might push then the, the you know, the, the retailers. To, to make the changes. So a word came uh, about a potential executive order, a he said, she said sort of thing in Washington. Leave all that to the side. It proved to me that this is a polar issue and a lot of people are interested in what might or what might not happen with renewable fuel. Oh, definitely. When you look at the administration and who they put together on their team, one person you say, oh, ethanol's fine. Then you look at the other person, oh, ethanol's at risk. Then you look at another person, oh, ethanol's fine. You look at another person, oh, ethanol's at risk. So I'm sure that the, peop- the pundits who are trying to figure out, well, where are they, are, are, are unsure. And then you have this thing pop up on the point of obligation. Uh, now, I will say, and I've said it publicly, is that most people who are involved in this debate do not want to move the point of obligation. There are a few voices that do. And that's what stirred the concern. And and it was the, uh, again, most people don't want to move it, and and they feel it will cause great problems to move that point of obligation, and it has not been moved. But that's something that we may address in legislation, too. uh, But we would then then codify it Mm -hmm. so that it wouldn't. It wouldn't be left at the whim of an administrator. So with soy biodiesel, there has been on and off again a blender's credit. And now that credit is for the blender, 
some of the biodiesel industry are saying that should be pointed differently to the producer because Argentine biodiesel is coming into the country and they're getting a tax break for it. Well, I would say they need to they need to come in and, and talk to folks, but you know the the blending of diesel with bio with the B twenty or whatever formulation is a lot different than ethanol blending, um, and and it's funny how biodiesel gets caught up in these fights when it's really really part of the solution, and they just we just need to help them obtain more market share, and they, they do rely on the. They would love to see the tax credit. We were tax reform could take that away um, because the whole idea was to make a fair, flatter, simpler tax code for everybody. Um, but if everybody's playing by the same rules, then if all renewables are not getting any benefits, then I, I think even biodiesel would say, "Okay, everybody's playing by the rules." But now we still pick and choose favorites. John Bodie with the Corn Refiners Association is talking about uh, not only he but others who suggest a bioenergy. We're on the, the, the case and the cusp of being able to use corn and soy and crops for, for products that traditionally have been petroleum-based that they see real opportunity for rural America and for industry. Do they have a leg to stand on here? Maybe. I mean, I've seen the bags. I've seen the cups. I know what can be done. The question is, can it, do it be done at a an affordable cost that people are willing to pay? You know, it's really a business decision. And who's willing to put up the capital to have the facility to make the products that we'll use it from that uh, commodity product versus a traditional oil-based, crude oil-based product. Congressman, thank you for spending time with us here on Open Mic. I've asked all the questions. you got an open forum to wrap us up. No, well, it's, you know, may you live in interesting times is always a great phrase, and we're living in one. And uh, as it was told to us early in January, you know, buckle your seat belts because we're moving. It should be uh, fun to watch, and I, I can guarantee it's fun to be here. Our thanks to Illinois 50th District Representative John Chimkus, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.